I'm J.G. Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Parallax is you observe an object, you see a change, but that change is not really a change in the object, but just a change in how you relate to the object in your perspective of the object. Welcome to the testing room of the Parallax Corporation's Division of Human Engineering. Now, please cross the chair, and you'll sit down, make yourself comfortable, and be sure to place each one of your hands on the box on either side of the chair, making sure that each one of your fingers is on one of the white rectangles. Sit back, nothing is required of you except to observe the materials that are presented to you. Be sure to keep your fingers on the box at all times. Alright, hope you find the test pleasant experience. On this edition of Parallax Views, a special fascinating and previously unpublished conversation that may shed light on the social media phenomenon known as QAnon, which a recent FBI memo declared could pose a potential domestic terrorist threat. Joining us on this episode is a pivotal fixture of the bohemian tech counterculture in the early days of internet culture, Joseph Matheny. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that name, Joseph is one of the pioneers of what is known as the alternate reality game, or ARG. Now, unpacking what an ARG is can often prove a little difficult, especially when you're trying to explain it to those unfamiliar with it. But it is essentially a collaborative storytelling game that uses the real world as a platform. It's a genre of game that has flourished in the age of the internet, and one that doesn't require the players necessarily realize that they're playing. Matheny's Ong's Hat is often credited with being the first alternate reality game. And, like QAnon, it dealt with secret history and conspiracy theories. I assume by now, listeners can sort of see the direction I'm going in with this. The parallels between alternate reality games and QAnon are so eerily similar that some have even whispered Matheny himself may be the man behind QAnon. Matheny adamantly denies this, and I believe him, but both of us believe that QAnon, knowingly or unknowingly, is utilizing the mechanics of an alternate reality game. In addition to this, 
Joseph and I also discuss the hijacking of counterculture by corporate and right-wing forces. In other words, this is an episode that'll take you down a rabbit hole, and it's going to be one that you won't want to miss. So without further ado, my conversation with Joseph Matheny. Welcome to Parallax Views, Joseph Matheny. Thank you for having me. So, Joseph, you've uh, been in the uh, the the news lately a little bit. I mean, you you were just on Dakota Ring, which I, I believe was a uh, Slate podcast. But how how would you like to uh, introduce yourself uh, for you know uh, listeners that may be unfamiliar with you? You're kind of a behind-the-scenes um, guy. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm a multidisciplinary artist. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't even know that's what I was until um, I was at the uh, University of California, Santa Barbara. I don't know, years ago, six or seven years, something like that. And um, they had me teach a class in what is now called transmedia, and um, and I and I was searching for a term. And they go, oh well, it's multidisciplinarian because that's that's what that's the department that's sponsoring this, and that's what you do. I'm like, oh, okay, that's what I am. <laughs> so what 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 is that? Um, out of curiosity, because that's that's like the the big the big sort of takeaway from your work is that it's a uh, transmedia storytelling. Uh, what what is transmedia storytelling? Uh, well, transmedia is a word that got glommed on after the fact, and I've never been quite uh, happy with it. Um, I, I called it transgressive storytelling, and then and then uh, I'm not saying that I influenced it, but then um, professionals started using the term transmedia because um, I don't know. I think ARG or alternate reality game was kind of too loaded, and that was something that got attached to it um, later as well. I, I I never really balked against that one as much, but something about transmedia just rubs me the wrong way. Um, it sounds like it's trying to be too clever by one half. Um, but basically what it is, is it's uh, when I started doing it back in the late 80s, there was all this emerging media technology. And I include bulletin board systems at the time, which you know later became the Internet uh, and then came, kind of became the web. Um, there was all this emerging technology um, that allowed you to tell stories across multiple mediums so that you could create a truly immersive experience for the for the uh We'll call it the user, for lack of a better term. Um, the experiencer is another one. Um, and then you could build this story that kind of like walked off the page of a book into a radio broadcast that walked out of the radio broadcast into an email exchange that, you know what I mean? Um, so that you could bring the story to life and, um, and bring it a little closer to home because I've always been more interested in storytelling as, a, as an initiatory process. Um, and kind of the spiritual aspect and the dimension of it, which, you know, is, is part of art that I think we've lost a little bit. Um, but, you know, so not to like wander off into that, but uh, it's using different mediums to tell a consistent story across the different mediums, which I think give it more power because it brings it to life in the in the uh, experiencer's mind. And you've been you've been involved in this since you know the the early days. So if you could talk a little bit about that early internet sort of cyber counterculture, there was a lot of 
utopian ideas going around and, mm-hmm. you know, crossover with conspiracy culture and the occult. What was this early sort of scene like? There, there's a lot of crossover with hacker culture, too. Yeah, I mean, back back in the in the uh, 80s, um, when the bulletin board, the late 80s, when the bulletin board systems were kind of gaining traction and computers um, being affordable and accessible to the average person was gaining traction. Um, you started to have like the, you know, the, uh, the Mac classic and the Mac SE and uh, even the IBM PC home computers became more affordable, you know, um, and, and they started to become uh, plentiful and, and kind of propagate not, you know, like what we see now is like, there's literally everybody in the world has almost has a computer. Whereas back in the eighties, this was something that it was kind of a rarefied thing. And it was kind of a, um, um, a hobbyist sort of thing because back then we all used to build our own hardware, write our own code. Um, and it was very tied to say, um, or very much like, uh, like the ham radio subcultures or, uh, the CB radio subcultures. There was like all these people that were into the gear and they were into a lot of other things, including the utopian ideals that kind of came with this. And, um, the ideals were that we could create this new form of media that was uh, accessible to all, you know, so there was a very populist kind of attitude towards this um, and that it would be the great leveler and it would level the playing field and anybody could be a publisher and anybody could be a communicator and anybody could be a broadcaster in, in air quotes, or as we called it, multicasting back then. Um, and this, and this was picked up and, and uh, championed by people like Timothy Leary um, Robert Anton Wilson, uh, Mondo 2000, which was all very counterculture sources. Um, and so when you would be bumping around with the other people in this milieu, you would invariably be talking about Terrence McKenna and raves and psychedelic drugs and occult uh, rituals and like all this stuff kind of like was part of the package of somebody that was probably into that. I'm not saying everybody, but a lot of people were part of that. Um, so Silicon Valley basically grew uh, out of the roots of that. So so drugs were a thing. Counterculture thinking was a thing. Um, I mean, one of the biggest and most popular uh, bulletin board systems in the early days was the well, the whole, uh, whole Earth Electronic Link, which was uh, uh, the electronic offshoot of Stuart Brand's Whole Earth Catalog. So um, there was like all this uh, – um, stuff happening and people talking about things and uh, plans being made. And I mean, out of that came the more commercial aspects of that, like wired magazine kind of came off the well uh, Boing Boing, which used to be a print scene it, that eventually became what it is now was a forum on the well, um, you know, that was based around the print zine. Mondo 2000 had a forum on the well that was based around their print zine, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So this all kind of like came out of, oddly enough, um, psychedelic uh, undercurrents, um, industrial undercurrents. Like, you know, like you would talk to these people and everybody was like going to the raves and checking out the psyche TV shows. And it was like it was like this weird underground Bay Area thing um, that eventually became like highly commercialized. And I don't think you can even find the, the, the traces of that left anymore. But, you know, it's much like punk rock. Um, like in the early or in the late or the early, late 70s and the early 80s, punk rock was very different than 
kind of the rebranded punk rock we got in the nineties. So, um, looking for the traces of that, it can be hard sometimes to, to, uh, to discern them. Well, you know, I, I'm not sure that the, uh, the connection is, is too odd. Like I can see why the early internet culture, uh, would cross over with stuff like the occult and, uh, you know, conspiracy culture and, um, also psychedelics, because to me, it's all about, uh, it's all about hacking, right? So, uh, you know, yeah. psychedelics were about hacking consciousness, uh, you know, the occult is about hacking consciousness, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, it's it's very similar to what people wanted to do with uh, the internet and computers. And, you know, the idea of social engineering comes a lot out of hacking culture, too. So I think it's all connected. Yep. Yeah, it is. And, and also, I think that the um, the punk rock kind of ethos of DIY was part of it. Um, and like I said, the, some of the big uh, people probably don't remember this unless you were there. But like in the in the mid 80s, um, people like Timothy Leary and Robert Anton Wilson were were really talking up the the home computer uh, you know, potential really, really big. Um, and then there was other people like like Mondo 2000 kind of spun out of that. And their whole magazine was about the DIY potential of hacking your own brain, hacking your own reality. In fact, Mondo 2000 at one point, let's see, when they first started, they were called High Frontiers, and then they changed the name of the magazine to Reality Hackers, and then they changed it to Mondo 2000 like later in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. So, I mean, that was what it was all about. It was like learn to do your own thing, learn to hack your own consciousness, Learn to hack your own reality. It, it was reality hacking is what it was. And so um, to, to look at it now, when you look at like these monoliths like Google and Facebook and, you know, all these all these like highly uh, commercialized interests that basically run the Internet now, it, it, it was not that in the in the early days. It was the Wild West. It was great. <laughs> I had a lot of I had a lot of fun. <laughs> I, I always I always think of, uh, you know, the, the notorious uh john mcafee because he's sort of this like wild figure that just like sort of rose to prominence through uh mcafee anti antivirus but -hmm. like he's one of these people where if you like look at his story and some of the documentaries about him he was just some dude that was like sort of a counterculture guy that liked doing drugs and stuff you Mm -hmm. know and and that was the original culture these weren't necessarily like suit and tie types no, none of them were. That was the thing. I used to go to the B-Mug, the, the Berkeley Mac user groups back in the day. And, uh, you know, the nickname for uh, people like me back then, I was a Unix system administrator. And um, the, the, the nickname for people like me was Ponytail. And I did have one at that point, And so did anybody else. If you almost certain that if somebody was like a Unix system administrator, they had a, they had a ponytail <laughs> and they probably wore Birkenstocks. I, I never stooped that low. But um, but I did have a ponytail and I was usually goth to the max. Uh, my clothes were, you know, um, and yeah, we would sit up all night and eat Chinese food and drink Joe Cola and uh, and and even do drugs. I used to call it uh, DUI on the Infobond where I would do drugs and then I would hack. Um, and th- that was the nickname for the uh, the uh, Internet back then was the information superhighway. And we shorthanded it as the Infobond. So, um, yeah, there was a lot of weird experiments going on. There was a lot of cool stuff going on. The great thing about the that era, too, was you if you were cruising around on the bulletin board systems or even on the early web, the very early web, most of the web pages that were some of the first web pages were, uh, you know, um, uh, alien channeling 
websites like ZetaTalk or um, Deoxy.org, which was like a gigantic compendium of psychedelic thinking. Um, so you could see that, that that influence was really prevalent back in those days. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think it's interesting because I think uh, now people really associate Silicon Valley in a lot of ways with that sort of like, uh, I don't know, like almost a, a right-wing sort of libertarian ethos. Mm-hmm. And I guess there's always been sort of a libertarian aspect mm-hmm. to Silicon Valley, but I think there was also other things going on, you know. Um, in a way, it could be more left. Um, well, most of the people you would run into – here's the weird thing. Back back in the day, in the early days, most of the people you ran into were probably left or or post-left, um, like me, kind of a post-left, post-left anarchist. Bob um, Black. Reading Bob yeah, Black yeah. and Abolition of Work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that whole that whole um, kind of uh, semi-autext uh, – autonomedia – Generation and I, I, I count myself among that um, is was was very predominant. But then, when after I'd say right after Netscape IPO'd, and all of a sudden this thing that used to be a hobby became this thing that you could become immensely wealthy doing, um, and all the money started to flow in, um, I started to see more and more people getting involved that were coming out of Berkeley Business School, Wharton, you know, and these were the MBAs. Um, and these people wore polo shirts and, and pleated pants, and they were kind of that that cut of person. Yuppies. Um, yeah, yup. Well, they were post-yuppie, but they were definitely, yeah, we'll call them yuppies. But by then, I think the term yuppie had, had fallen out of favor. But, um, yeah, and so then you had like this stratified – environment where you had all the people that were creating this stuff um, that were, you know, still kind of like uh, lefty counterculture type people and going to raves like and then coming to work the next day still high. And then you had like all these people that were kind of like the marketing kind of, you know, I mean, a great analogy of this would be Jobs and Wozniak, right? So you've got you've got Woz, who was like this guy that that really was the one that built the tech. And then you've got Steve Jobs, who was the guy that sold the tech, basically, um, and and it started this the, the software company started to stratify into into that, um, and then with the startups, it used to be that the guy who started the thing in his garage, who was you know um, didn't bathe very often and, and ate bad food, um, was the guy that ended up running it, and that's why you got people like McAfee running McAfee, um, uh, or McAfee, and then. Um, Later, you started to get people that started to attach themselves from the inception that were like more marketing and business oriented. And then it became kind of a requirement that if you were going to – because I know I was in some of these startups. If you were going to go pitch uh, Sand Hill Road for venture capital, you better have a presentable person who had an MBA that was pitching and not and not the guy in the hoodie. You know what I mean? Um, so it, it kind of became a cultural requirement that if you were going to get money and do this thing, um, that you had to have one of these people attached, a, a Chad <laughs> attached to you, um, and, or a Biff or whatever you want to call them. Um, and most of these people, you know, like I noticed, cause I was, I was running with these people. Most of them came from wealthy families and they had like a prestigious family background. And like, you know, like I said, they came from prestigious Ivy league schools, so the 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 face of it changed in the 90s 
And by the end of the 90s and the early aughts, it had changed. It, it had become no longer a thing where um, a, a grubby guy in a hoodie could come up with this great idea and, and sell it out of a garage. It, it became like um, it became business, you know, big business, big money. Well, it's it's uh it's the same old story all over again. It's like uh I've I've had people I've talked to who are really interested in the way corporate culture has has hijacked uh mindfulness, you know, mm-hmm. as as a method or self care and these type of things, which yeah. originally start out as things on the left in the counterculture, and then mm-hmm. it gets hijacked by sort of the uh the corporate culture. Yeah, I mean, a great example of that would be alternate reality gaming. So when I started doing the the multidisciplinarian stuff, um, I was calling it living book process. And then mm, right around the time I wrapped up Ong's Hat, I I was working on the Majestic Project as a beta tester. And I met a couple of people that were doing what we called kind of grassroots uh, online storytelling using my methodology. And um, they and that's where kind of the the terminology alternate reality game grew out of was those people and one of them was a late friend um, Dave Sabolski who is passed away a couple of years ago unfortunately um, and and he and I started working together um, and it wasn't like it was right after that that the beast kind of like started used ARG you know like to to promote a, a Steven Spielberg movie AI. Um, and and then right after the success of that and uh, I Love Bees, which was the ARG that launched, um, I think it was Halo. Halo. Yeah, yeah. It's Halo. Um, then then all of a sudden my phone was blowing up. Um, Dave's phone was blowing up, and we were getting all these phone calls from Hollywood. Um, in fact, even at one point, uh, CAA, the representation company, called us, and they wanted us to do that thing to launch this thing or that thing, you know, and, and I didn't do very much of that. I helped Dave with a couple things that were kind of commercial, but personally, and he understood how I felt, but he had a family. So I didn't, I didn't begrudge him for participating. Um, I felt that, that what I had intended to do, what I thought I had done is created an art form that would be able to withstand commercialization, but I was wrong. Um, and, and in fact, it got, it got co-opted so fast that my head almost spun, um, off my shoulders. It was, it was incredible because the power of the, the, uh, whatever it is that allows companies to come along and just grab up fringe art and then, and then turn it into a commercialized process is, is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. I mean, I saw it happen to punk rock. I saw it happen to the rave culture. I saw it happen to computer culture. Um, you know, like I said, in the early days, it was about hobbyism. Um, and, and now I was watching it happen to ARG and, and I was like, just, I was, it really put me off the whole process for a while where I just kind of walked away and gave up on being an activist at all. Because I'm like, no matter what I come up with as an artist, they're going to find a way to co-opt it and and colonize it, which they've done yet again. (laughs) Well, if if we could back up just just a bit yeah. with this was this with uh this term ARG alternate mm-hmm. reality game I yeah. always like try to explain it to my more um I hate this word but like my normie friends and I always oh. have trouble explaining what an alternate reality game is because they always think like oh that are you talking about video games or what I uh, they get lost real easily so how would you uh describe the concept of ARGs uh to an outsider it's a, it's an immersive narrative that that is not restricted to any one uh, medium. I guess that's the sentence that I could use to sum it up. 
So basically, it's a game or a story. It's a story that uses game methodology to uh, tell itself, and it's written in a way that um, crosses media boundaries so that um, it's immersive in nature. So, I mean, that's really the only way I can put it, the simplest way I can put it. So if you have a story that has characters in an ARG, one of the things you and – there's, and there's no, like, guidebook per se – um, Dave and I put one out in the early, we actually put out the first kind of guidebook called, uh, this is not a game. And, um, the guidebook basically would, you know, it, it's not a rule book by any stretch of the imagination and it changes all the time because new mediums are constantly popping up. Um, but the guidebook loosely would say, write a story and the characters in that story, um, uh, would, can be, uh, crafted using, uh, actors they can be crafted using uh, bots. They can be crafted using a lot of things. I mean, there's tools out there that allow automation and scheduling of um, social media posts, for example. There's a thing called Conductor, C-U-N-D-C-T-R-R, something like that, um, which is a, a utility that allows you to plan an entire campaign where you would have a Twitter account and you would have a Facebook account and an Instagram account and all these things. And then on scheduled basis, you could have it appear that there is a person behind this account that is posting when in fact it's all been pre-planned and scheduled through this, through this application. Um, and I know this is sounding, sounding suspiciously like what just went down in the election. And it is, um, to large part. And that's another thing that irritated me, but we won't go into that right now. Um, the ARG basically is, uh, is a story just like any story that is told in a way that allows the uh, participants of the story to include the people who formerly would have been called the audience, but now they're called participants. So it's a way of breaching the proscenium of story and storytelling and story recipient. And I, I guess the, the uh, a really key characteristic of it is uh, you don't let other people in on the fact that it's a game necessarily. It's, it's sort of like um, – and I, I don't know if you like this example, but uh, some people would refer to something like the Blair Witch Project as, mm-hmm. as akin to an ARG. Because, you know, for the longest time, people are like, oh, this is real. You know, this actually happened. Um, so that seems to be a part of it, right? No, that, 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 I mean, it is and it isn't. I mean, here's the thing. In, in, in the early days, I was naive in thinking that if the story was obviously a, a, enough not – something that should be considered absolutely true that it wouldn't be. But boy, was I wrong. Um, and the, the boy with, which is a great example is like, I was standing in line to see that movie. I knew exactly what was going on. I mean, I had, nobody had to tell me what was going on. I knew what was going on and I'm standing in line to see that movie when it came out and the people in the line are all, this is a true story. This really happened. You know, and after I watched, walked out of the theater, people were still talking about that. And I, and I was, baffled that 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 this had to be explained to somebody that this is a this is um a participatory event where we all have agreed silently to suspend disbelief you know what i mean um which is what what you do when you read a when you read a work of fiction when you walk into a movie that is the silent contract that's that's been signed between you and the artist is that we're not going to sit here in the movie and yell that that's CGI. We're not going to sit here in the movie and yell that that's a, that's a stunt double, right? We don't do that. And I don't have to have um, 
a disclaimer on the on the uh, the cover page of Alice in Wonderland. Do I? Um, and and that's why I'm really confused. But I guess what's happened somewhere along the way, and television probably had a lot to do with this, um, is that uh, people's ability to discern uh, has really become fuzzy. And you, you sort of uh, you sort of saw this very very early on. You're known uh, to many people as sort of the uh, the the pioneer of the alternate reality game. And I guess this leads us to uh, have to briefly discuss uh, the ARG you're most known for, which is uh, Ong's Hat. Could you tell mm-hmm. my listeners just a little bit about that? I know you've covered it so much before, but yeah, um, basically it was um, a conspiracy story. That uh, and this and, and again, little qualifying statement here. This was back in started this back in the late '80s when the conspiracy story was, you know, not what they are today. If I were to do an ARG today, it would definitely not have anything to do with conspiracy, um, because that the patina that's on conspiracy now is just just horrible. After things like Pizzagate and um, some other uh, what QAnon and things like that, but. Um, it was a conspiracy story. It was very lefty. Um, it, it basically used a lot of um, Taz uh, terminology and Taz thinking, Taz in the, in the temporary autonomous zone by Hakim Bay sense of the word. Um, there was a lot of um, uh, puzzle solving and uh, legend tripping. There was a lot of people that would go out to Ong's Hat looking for the lost travel cult. And, and it was just a, it was a story, um, you know, it was a fantasy story. It was very very fantasy oriented. And I never thought in a million years, anybody would ever take it seriously. Um, I made sure that if there was ever a question that came up, there was three or four places that you could go to online and on the CD ROM that I eventually put out to, uh, to uh, facilitate the game um, that said, this is a game. But one of the things about playing these kind of games and being this one, this being the first one, um, I was very influenced by theater, living theater, and and also by um, you know uh, different kinds of, of method work. And um, to me, it was important that we all, you know, were in agreement that we were playing a game, but we didn't have to talk about the fact that we were playing a game. And most of the people, I think, in the beginning, um, were able to do that. Uh, some people kind of lost it along the way. <laughs> for one reason or another um other people were not sincere actors and not sincere players and then and then other people came along um after i did coast to coast and and that's when it just kind of got out of control and i had to eventually just pull the lever on this thing because all these people were showing up claiming that this was a true story some of them even claiming that they knew people that that were at the ashram and like all this weird uh, stuff that I started seeing these weird phenomena um, and I've seen it with other conspiracies since, but that was kind of an up close and personal for me was seeing people actually act out um, on this kind of stuff and, and kind of get into uh, a mass hysteria or group hysteria state, um, which was very odd and which I wanted nothing to do with, honestly. Yeah. And it, 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 it's sort of a, it's, it's interesting because that, that sort of a puzzle aspect you know, we see this in um, ARGs that people do today, uh, you know, the most famous being like these uh, Slenderman web series, mm-hmm. uh, like Everyman Hybrid, where, where they'll actually uh, like leave clues in physical spaces 
Yeah. And they'll have uh, the people that watch find those physical spaces, those clues that are left yep. in the physical spaces in yep. order for the story to keep going. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that adds to – well, you know, from the from the, the less dark aspect of it, I think that that adds to um, the, the, the pleasure of playing these kind of immersive stories is that when you find something in physical space, it, it kind of breaches the um, – into reality from the the story breaches into reality. It's a breaching experiment um, to put it, to put it in Garfinkel terms. Um, so uh, I think that that adds and lends not, a, not a credibility to the story, but it basically gives it um, a little bit of leverage for the, uh, to help you with the suspension of disbelief. So if you go find this thing in, in real, in real time, real space, it's an object that you can actually touch and put your hands on. Um, you know, it becomes it becomes more tangible and it becomes more real to the player. Right now, unfortunately, what we've discovered is that there are certain personality types that that can trigger um, a flight into uh, destructive fantasy. And um, the, here's the weird thing is back in like. Ninety nine, two thousand, when the game was going really strong. Um, I was doing this thing where um, I was leaving enough room for interpretation on the part of the user so that my my hope was that every person would have a unique experience. And so I was really, when people would say they had the answer to something, I would come back and say, you have an answer, but not the answer because there isn't the answer. And so that I, I was trying to create some space for people to have their own experience um, and that got harder and harder to do as more and more people started to come on board and, and try to declare themselves the the expert or the person with the answer to a certain thing. Um, but I was – actually never talked about this publicly before. I was contacted um, by the Department of the Navy um, in – I want to say 2000 um, who wanted to talk to me about uh, – the, the the synchronicities that people were experiencing while playing this game and and of course I didn't talk to them Ong and Sat, I was right we're yeah 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 yeah, okay. yeah 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 we're still talking about Ong Sat. Um I was really confused why the Navy would would just give two shits about excuse me care at all about um, synchronicity of all things right like why would the Navy care about that but then it was only about a year or two later that I saw that there was on on uh, the Navy website, the .gov website, somebody pointed out to me that there was um, research that was going on with the Department of the Navy and synchronicity. It's very odd, but they were interested in that for some reason in like 99, 2000. I don't know whatever came of it, um, but but there was that. Um, and then I don't know if you know this, but later, I want to say around 2003 or four, there was um, a division of DARPA that put out a, an RFI for um, people to develop alternate reality games um, for uh, training scenarios. So the military got really interested in this. Um, and and I, for the life of me, never thought in a million years that somebody, something that I was doing that was basically uh, influenced by the work of people like William S. Burroughs, um, would ever get on the radar of military intelligence, but it did. 
And I don't think since then I've realized that there's absolutely nothing you can do that won't get on the radar of military intelligence if it gains any traction at all. But I was naive back then, so I just didn't see it coming. That's 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 a weird avenue we could explore. But uh, the, <laughs> the other the other uh, thing that I think people don't realize is uh, were you influenced at all by um, there's this religious scholar called um, James P. Carse. He wrote a book called Finite. And infinite games. Are, absolutely. are you familiar with that? Yeah, Can you yeah, tell I was my a- listeners a little bit about it? Yeah, I, I was absolutely influenced by that. So basically what Ong's Hat was an attempt at was an infinite game. Um, so you have two types of games, and, and an infinite game is kind of a theoretical game, um, whereas the, the infinite game can go on forever because there are no winners and losers, unlike a finite game or a zero-sum game, as some people know it which is um, has a, an end, a goal, winners, and losers. Um, an infinite game is a field of play that, that uh, at least theoretically, can go on forever. So um, it, it's, it's play for the sake of play. I was also influenced by Homo Ludens, um, Man the Player. Um, and uh, these are – and lots of other things I was reading in the 80s about – uh, the, the, the sacred origins of games, um, being that games actually grew out of sacred rites and theater grew out of a, a sacred rites. And so I was looking uh, at getting back to the sacred. And, um, yeah, so that, that's basically, I was very influenced by infinite games and, and, and this was my attempt at creating a public infinite game. Um, one of the, one of the, takeaways from that experiment was that people are so entrained in playing zero-sum games that they really don't know how to play an infinite game, and you put them in the scenario to play one, they almost always seem to try to turn it into a finite game, because they don't know what else to do. Yeah, well, the infinite game is is a really radical idea, because it it takes out that winner and Mm -hmm. and loser aspect. It's more about, you know, uh, just authentic interaction and, and sort of you know, there, there's like a it's play for the sake of play, almost, uh, almost a situationist type uh, deal. No, it's absolutely a situationist type of deal. I was very influenced by Situationist International as a young man, um, and uh, it, it is exactly what I was after was like creating a field of play for the sake of play. And what I kept running into time and time again was that you know people are really heavily in this culture entrained to zero-sum thinking and zero-sum games. And, and when you put them in an infinite situation where um, you play for the sake of play, they almost they almost don't know what to do and kind of destructively act out to turn it into a zero-sum game if, the, if, they, you know, if they can, and they will. They will. And, you know, it, it brings to mind, I'm looking at it on my shelf right now, the uh, Umberto Eco book, uh, Foucault's Pendulum, uh-huh. where uh, they sort of end up playing this game where they're, feeding this computer all this conspiracy information, which they don't take seriously at first. Right. But then, as the plot unfolds, they start believing everything. You know, and I see the parallel there between that and Ong's Hat. Well, I've, I saw people playing Ong's Hat do that. Like, in the course of play, they would they would get very, very, very paranoid, and they would start believing some of this stuff. It Here's the thing, is like, some people might give lip service to believing that that we live in a reflexive and a responsive universe, 
But when the first time they start seeing uh, up close and personal evidence of that through like high level synchronicities that don't go away for long periods of time, they get paranoid because they, they actually never have experienced a, uh, a reflexive uh, responsive universe. They've, they've, they've theorized on it. They've talked about it. They've, they've given it lip service, right? Uh, for whatever reason, peer pressure, peer, you know, whatever, for whatever reason, they've, they've, they've professed a belief in it, but they've never experienced it. And when they have experienced it, when they experience it for the first time, um, it's either, uh, an, an experience of joy, recognition, oh my God, it is really reflective and responsive. It's responding. Or, oh my God, it's responding, you know, and they freak out and they go into, and they go into kind of a paranoid spiral, which, you know, if you if you're a reader of Robert Anton Wilson, then you will clearly identify this as the Chapel Perilous scenario. Could you, uh, for for listeners that may not be familiar, what what is the Chapel Perilous? The Chapel Perilous scenario basically boils down to what I just said: is you get into a situation where you are confronted with uh, incontrovertible evidence, incontrovertible evidence. Ah, if I could speak English, evidence that the universe, you are part of a universe that is alive. And then the response to that in Chapel Perilous is, you know, it's taken from... Uh, um, uh, Philip K. Dick, right? No, it's taken okay. from, um, I'm blanking here, the Parsifal journey, uh, the, the grail, the grail legend. Um, so Parsifal hits this chapel, right, in this in Chapel Perilous. And basically it's, it's a chapel that shows you... Um, your deepest fears or your greatest, your greatest desires and your, in your highest aspirations, depending it, it's very garbage in garbage out kind of scenario where what you bring to it is what you get out of it. Um, and I think, um, Joe Campbell used to talk about it. And, uh, in star Wars, uh, that was exemplified by the whole thing where Luke, um, cut off his father's head and then it was his head. Um, so basically it's, it's your greatest fear. And your greatest desire unveiled. It's a mirror is what it really is. But your response to it is also has a lot to do with your character and, and, and are you ready for it? So when people hit that chapel perilous spot, if they're harboring resentment, if they're harboring fear, mostly that's the killer, um, then they will have some sort of like panic attack, um, paranoid response. If they're if they're not harboring any of those things or they're able to overcome them pretty quickly, then it will be a very liberatory experience. Um, I've had them many times and, and you know, uh, they've been some of the greatest experiences of my life. I've watched other people just completely collapse underneath them. So, yeah, and that, that's that's why I brought up Philip K. Dick, because I know that was the uh, example Robert Anton Wilson would always give of someone yeah. going through the chapel perilous where, yep. you know, Philip K. Dick ends up believing in this, uh, I think it was Valis was the yep. entity, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, Phil Dick is a, is a the funny thing about Phil is he, he's a good example of both sides of that coin. Um, he brought back some real gems of insights uh, from his Chapel Perilous journey, but he also kind of went nutty, you know. And, and there are periods of time where you can go through that experience and, you can you can you can get nutty for a while, but then you can come out the other end and you're you're a better person for it. You know, I raised my hand. I've done that as well. Um, and and so that started to happen to people when they were playing Onk's Hat. And so it got kind of a um, 
reputation as a mind control experiment, which it never was. Um, it was not designed to do anything other than give people the space to have their own experience. And sometimes people are not ready to have their own experience. Yeah, it's 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 interesting to me too because I think it um I think something like Ong's hat and the reactions that some of these players had to it it, hmm. it reminds me of um you know I think the Rand Corporation really pushed this idea uh since like the 60s that we're all rational agents and, and we all just like there's this whole rational choice theory way of looking at the world and I I don't think humans are are that simple and I think Ong's hat proves that in a lot of ways. Yeah, humans are not simple at all, and and that's kind of what I was trying to – one of the many things I was trying to do with Ong Sat was I was trying to give people a space to where they could have an experience. Here, here if I had the, the blue sky scenario that I was shooting for, which I never achieved, but what I wanted to achieve was there would be this thing that people would experience, and then they would come out the other end, and they would ch- they would compare notes, and they would learn that their experience was not the other person's experience, and then they would learn from each other. Now, I know that sounds kumbaya at this at this stage of history, but it really was what my intention was. It was my vision, at least. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah, and I, I think it shows that, like, uh, the, the, the darker side of that, how, how people reacted to it, I think it shows that we don't always think in necessarily rational terms since we're so right. obsessed with, you know, that, that search for meaning. If we find patterns, even when the patterns aren't really there – you know, we can end up believing in the strangest things. Could you talk a little bit about how extreme some people got when it came to the Ong's Hat game? Um, well, I mean, there was a lot of people that, that just had, like, complete and total breakdowns. Um, there were people that uh, got my phone number. The, remember that when I first set all this up, this was the early days of the Internet, and um, there was no... Uh, there was no mechanism in place to hide your uh, information if you were you had a domain registered to you, and then people started to discover that if they looked up my domains that they would get my home address, which that was stupid of me, I know, um, but I didn't foresee it being a problem when I bought the domains back in the early days. Um, that became a problem later on. People started to show up at my house. Um, there was, uh, you know, and the reaction was varied. There was people that that showed up um, that were looking for answers that I couldn't give them, and but I'd have to then have a conversation with this person camping on my lawn about how the answer was within them, and you know, I'd send them on their way. Um, there were people that uh, were absolutely positive. I mean, I've seen it all. I mean, I saw people that got involved in the early days that that you know, absolutely convinced me that they were rational actors that, you know, Oh, I've studied semiotics and I understand this from, you know, and, and, and then I'd watch them actually start to believe not just the young test stuff, but all of this kind of weird conspiracy stuff, they would, they would start to absorb it and they would start to take it on and, uh, and kind of do a projection with it where, you know, a year or two after coming into contact with all this, uh, they would be a completely different person. And then, when I would try to talk them off the ledge, they would start screaming at me that I was part of MK Ultra, and uh, oh my God, you know that Robert Anton Wilson guy, or you know that Timothy Leary guy, and don't you know that LSD was a CIA mind control experiment, and you're part of it, and you know it's like I watch people just degenerate um, into in, into like babbling paranoids, um, and 
thankfully most of them came out of it on the other end, but you have to kind of just walk away from all this and leave it alone. I think for some people, um, they're, they're just not, it's not in their nature to be able to play with these kind of things. And then other people had great liberating experiences, you know, and, and I've, I've had great stories of people telling me that it changed their life when they were, they came across it when they were young and it changed their life. And, you know, and, and that's cool to hear too. So, um, the, the unfortunate thing is that the people that had the great experiences might send me a letter or an email, but they wouldn't um, publicly, uh, you know, go on a campaign. Um, whereas the minority, and, and I think uh, on the slate piece, I think you heard Denny Unger say it was about 25 percent. And I think he's right because we could see a lot going on in the background of the forums that other people couldn't see. About 25 percent were like just. Um, either acting like raving lunatics or they were raving lunatics. But I, don't, I think they were raving lunatics long before they, they got to us, to be honest with you. Well, you, you know, it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, conspiracy culture is sort of a, something that gets brought up on uh, this show from time to time. I find it very interesting, but I, I don't take it like um, – I, I don't take it all seriously. To me, it's just uh, urban legend and folklore in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah. Could you talk about what the conspiracy culture used to be uh, as opposed to what it has become? <laughs> yeah, well, for me, it's always been folklore. Um, you know, you and I had a conversation a couple days ago that was a you know, great conversation. I think we kind of see eye to eye on that, which is um, there was a time where it was just it was it was great folklore. It was just wonderful Americana is what it was. And there's always been a little bit of a dark underbelly to the conspiracy culture. I mean, you know, the John Birch Society, um, people like Constance Cumbie, and, you know, we, we, we had that conversation. Um, there's, there's always been kind of a dark undercurrent to it, and it's always been kind of um, some of the more extreme fundamentalist uh, groups uh, always glom on to the conspiracy culture, the right-wing conspiracy culture stuff. But mostly in the 80s, it was a lefty play, playing field. Um, mostly I think, um, what I remember was most of the people that I knew that were into conspiracy culture in the eighties, the early eighties, um, got, came into it through the Kennedy assassination conspiracy theories. Um, so they were, so they were reading, um, uh, what that guy, the, the, the lawyer from new Orleans, so um, Mark Lane, Mark Lane. Uh, no, 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 not Jim, Mark Lane. Jim Garrison, Jim Garrison. Garrison. Yeah. Jim Garrison. Yeah. They were reading Jim Garrison stuff. And, and all that other stuff that kind of spun out of it, Fletcher Prouty and all those kind of people. Um, at least the people I knew, that's, that's, they were, you know, they were, they were lefty conspiracy, conspiracy theorists who just didn't trust the government and the government's out to lie to you. And, you know, a lot of these people had lived through Watergate. So it was kind of a, you know, it was a natural reaction. And then there was a large contingent of people that were more my age because I'm not old enough to have like experienced the sixties as anything other than a very young child. Um, that that had more of a tongue-in-cheek approach to it, and we grew up on Robert Anton Wilson's Illuminatus trilogy, and we we read Cosmic Trigger, and you know, so we and, and then we we came of age with uh, uh, Church of the Subgenius in the 80s, so we had more of a and Discordianism, not to leave them out, um, so we had more of a, a skeptic approach to it, an agnostic approach to it, or what Bob Wilson would have called a model agnostic. Um, so we didn't just toss it all out like baby with the bathwater, but we definitely didn't take it like too seriously and let it ruin our lives. 
So the fact that we played with those tropes, um, you know, uh, meant that we didn't take it completely serious, but we didn't we didn't reject it outright either. Um, and so as the 80s progressed into the 90s and you had the uh, people going online and starting to compare information in the early days, it was still more of that like with the oxy.org and, and places like that where, you know, you had people still playing around with it and not taking it too seriously. And then in the nineties, as the nineties got to the late nineties, I started to see a real shift. And I think this has a lot to do with uh, another element that was being added to the equation here, which is that everybody started to get online, not just a select few, but a lot of people like everybody. Right. So, as more and more of the mainstream of America got online, there was more and more people that were online bringing their ideas, but there was also more and more people that were online that didn't, that hadn't been online for as many years as we had and not, had not learned the art of discernment yet. Because we were always messing with each other in the early days of online. We were constantly trying to prank each other. And so you never took anything too seriously that you got an email or you read on a website. Um, but, there was people that, that started to come online that, that didn't have the capacity uh, to discern that something maybe probably wasn't all the way true. Can I and, comment real quick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I was going to say, uh, you guys were sort of like the uh, the Jamie Kennedy character in Scream, you know, because the, the Jamie Kennedy's character is the guy that knows all the tropes and, yep. and the formula of the horror yep. movies. You guys knew the formula to all the conspiracy theories. Like yep. there's, there's certain tropes that go along with it for people that don't know the game yep. or, or how these conspiracy theories can arise and how people come up with them. It's a whole different thing altogether. Yeah. And they were also, like I said, they, they, they hadn't been online long enough to realize that not everything you read online is true. Um, and, and a lot of these people, like I said, everybody's getting online now. So now a lot of these people are also, some of the very same people that think that everything they see on television must be true because it's on television. So now they have like an up close and personalized version, um, a very narrow cast version where they can start to build uh, this, this reality tunnel to use a, a Wilsonian term for themselves um, and, and only read you subscribe to and read the things that they want to read. You know what I mean? So they're not, they're not picking it out of a stream as much, whereas they're making the stream. And then all this information is becoming more and more um, centralized, but it's also skewed in a certain direction. And, um, yeah, so anyway, this is this started to happen along with um, a lot of uh, the people that were getting involved in conspiracy theory online um, became more right wing. Um, and I think you and I had a conversation about this earlier Um I started to hear things in the back channels that were disturbing to me um, from people that wouldn't have said these things publicly. But once you were kind of like in their in their circle and they thought that you could be trusted for whatever reason, um, they they would they would say some things that, you know, that they would be a bit unsavory. And you're just going, what? What? That person has that attitude. I'm surprised. And that started to creep in. Um, and I think also uh, there was an element of uh, more and more people were coming online and responding to the masses with what they thought the masses wanted or what they felt like they were emboldened to say by the masses. 
So you had people like Jeff Rents started to show up and who made no bones about how he felt about race um, and, and continued to be like it back in the, in the late nineties, one of the heavy hitters in online conspiracy theory, as far as traffic um, uh, you had people like David Icke saying some of the thinly veiled racist things that he has said um, you have, this is, and this used to get me. I would, I would get yelled at by people because I worked in Silicon Valley because apparently I was working with backwards engineered alien technology. And what pissed me off about that was that they had so little regard for human ingenuity that they had to blame it or that, that we could not possibly have come up with any of this ourselves. We had to have some sort of divine intervention from the greys in order to even come up with integrated circuit chips. I mean, are you kidding me? But that, but that is, that's a trope with them. Well, it's, I was going to say, it's sort of like, a, you know, everyone's into, like, ancient aliens now. I even know, like, you know, it's it's part of the pop pop culture now. I know normies yeah, that yeah, watch it. Yeah, and yeah. I, I always think to myself, I'm like, the underlying premise of all this Chariots of the God shit is, like, pretty implicitly, it's, it's racist. All this pseudo-archaeology is pretty implicitly racist. It's like, uh, oh, the Egyptians, they couldn't have built the pyramids. How could the Dogon tribe have, you know, mapped the star system? Obviously, it was aliens. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I only recently saw that um, being pointed out, and I don't disagree with it. I was like, you know, I never really thought of it like that. But, yeah, it's that, too. I always saw it as, like, um, anti-human. It's like human beings are so stupid that they couldn't come up with anything on their own. They obviously needed alien intervention. Um, and it's like uh, when people find out that I used to hang out with Wilson and Leary, some of the same people, they would scream at me that that LSD is an MK Ultra plot, and therefore I must be part of the MK Ultra. I must be either a victim or one of the perpetrators. You know, and it's like all this victim thinking, um, which I also think that the, the ancient alien thing is is part of victim thinking as well. Um, it's kind of like this victim script that everybody runs that we couldn't possibly be smart enough to come up with these things on our own and we couldn't possibly be stupid enough to abuse the only the very things that we came up with to, to, to lend to our own destruction which we are doing but we must there must be like a greater force above us aliens or the illuminati or whatever it is that are pulling the strings to cause us to do these things because we're not smart enough to do them and we're not dangerous enough to do them to ourselves well i mean it, get, it gets really weird with with all these like conspiracy culture things because you know you have on the one hand the like 50s and 60s contactees who are suspiciously mm -hmm. talking about you know Nordic aliens that are yeah. blonde-eyed and blue-haired or blue-eyed blue yeah. and blonde-haired. Blue. I like it the other way, but yeah. <laughs> you have that on one hand, but then you know I always tell people, and, and some people take issue with this. I don't know what you think of it, but um, there are these sort of lefty conspiracy types. Uh, that come out of uh, the work of Mae Brussel, who was one, one of the mm -hmm. early JFK researchers, people like yep. uh, Dave Emery and, yep. and John Judge, and, you know, later on, people like Michael Rupert. And I remember um, Are You Serious of, of Mondo 2000, he said once in, in an interview that Rolling Stone got annoyed with him because he, uh, he wrote a piece on Michael Rupert, and he was like, you know, I, I think we should probably listen to him on some things. Same, mm -hmm. same with a guy like Dave Emery. Like, Dave Emery was covering... A lot of that Iran-Contra stuff before it became mainstream news. So it's interesting because I think 
conspiracy culture can accidentally stumble upon things. But then there's that side of it where it gets so paranoid. Well, Dave, Dave Emery, mostly I don't disagree with some of the things he talks about. He, there, some of the mind control stuff, he gets a little out there for me. Um, and also uh, some of the Nazis under the bed thing gets gets a little out there sometimes you know but mostly i mean i in the 80s in santa cruz i i was surrounded by on the radio may brussel was still alive and i was listening to her broadcast and dave emery was on every day pretty much all day long you could find a station in the bay area that was playing him at any given time um and and i was on some radio shows it was other people they were doing you know uh those kind of radio shows back then um and and it was interesting because um, it wasn't as crazy as some of the stuff I heard later. Um, I, I could roll my eyes a little bit with with Emery, um, but I wouldn't just like turn him off and say I can't listen to this horse shit anymore. Uh, whereas some of the stuff that started coming out in the late nineties, I, I really I, I started to take that attitude, and I I was trying to tell people back then, I'm like. I don't know what's, what the agenda is with some of these people. I don't know if they're just trying to sell a lot of books through sensationalism. I don't know if they actually believe what they're saying or, or, or what, but there are some dangerous conversations that I have been privy to that I do not like the tone of. And they're like, well, what do you think is going to happen? I'm like, I think that they're, they're provoking people and that they're going to continue to provoke people. And I don't think that, I don't know if they're doing it on purpose, but I don't think they care that they're doing it. And, you know, when the uh, Comet Ping Pong guy showed up with the gun and lit up, lit up the ceiling with a couple of rounds, that's the kind of stuff I was talking about. Um, when And now we're starting to see it almost daily, where we, almost every mass shooter is what now? A conspiracy theorist that is like, you know, been listening to or reading this stuff online. Um, and most of the alt-right is a, are some sort of weird branch of conspiracy theorists. Um, and, and this is the danger that I was talking about. It's like, this is being used um, just like national socialism used conspiracy theory to drum up this populist hate. And it seems to be, it seems to be being the same stories being played all over again. And I can't believe we're falling for it, but we are. Well, we even, we even actually, in a way we saw it in the eighties. And uh, it's one of the points where I, I sort of get annoyed with people like Mae Brussel or even a Dave Emery where they get involved in, you know, oh, the son of Sam was like a yeah. a, a ritual serial murder and he was yep. part of the process church. And yep. it becomes all part of this satanic panic yep. where you had people being persecuted uh, for being into the occult or alternative religious beliefs. Could you talk a little bit about going through that time period? I mean, you saw it. I did. And being that I was a very openly neo-pagan person at that point of time um uh, you know i i i recall that there was um i mean i had conversations with people that i thought were just like normal day-to-day people that i knew through uh, my job who saw me wearing uh, i used to have this masonic ring that i used to wear and it had the skull and bones on it oh, that's cool. um <laughs> yeah it was really cool and i and this guy asked me he's like is that a masonic ring i'm like yeah he goes so you're a satanist I'm like, how did we get here? <laughs> and and this was all people that were listening to this this um, uh, you know satanic ritual abuse stuff that was going on in the late 80s. It never really went away. Um, that's the thing is it, it it got kind of publicly batted down a little bit, but not 
I mean, I wouldn't say that it got retracted fully, but there have been champions of that to this day. There are champions of that thinking where, um, you know, there's like this underground pedophilic satanic culture. They're uh, in the that, suburbs. They're everywhere. <laughs> they, they are everywhere. Yeah, it's like Dave Emery and the Nazis. Um, although he may not have been too wrong. But, <laughs> but, but um, yeah, there's like all this uh, paranoia and, and the suspicion of your neighbor and like all this weird stuff that's going on. And if you look at it from a kind of a psychological perspective, really what's being said here is that if somebody's not a Judeo-Christian, with standard 50s American suburban values that they are to be suspected of being the worst thing possible. So it's, it's really, it's a smear campaign, but it's kind of a passive aggressive one, you know, where people aren't going to come out and say, I don't like you because you're a pagan, but they're going to come up with other reasons why you should not to be trusted that you're to be tarred and feathered and run out of the, out of the town. Well, it's, it's fascinating when you look at some of the uh, lectures from these people that promoted the Satanic Panic. Uh, I always think of the uh, the Ted Gunderson lectures at the Prophecy Club, which, you know, those have all leaked online now and they've been, you know, shared in tape trading circles. But I always find it fascinating because everything Gunderson describes as being Satanic is basically like secular humanists, atheists, uh, anyone who promotes progressive values. It's, it, you know, the hippies or the devil worshippers. Like yeah. he doesn't, he's not even talking about the devil half the time. He's not even talking about actual, like, devil worshippers. He's saying that anything related to non-Judeo-Christian value systems is of the devil. Well, I mean, if you read any of the, like, the, the stuff, the hardcore stuff that came out of the Birch Society, like, in the 60s and 70s, um, what, what was that one book, None Dare Call It Conspiracy, um, the Hidden Dangers of the Rainbow by Constance Cumby, like all of these people are, are basically fundamentalist Christian thinkers, right? Um, fundamentalists in one way or another. I mean, they might be Opus Dei, but that's still a fundamentalist Christian. Um, and so it's this fundamentalist Christian thinking that's, that is coupled with this um, uh, Cold War uh, communist scare thinking that kind of like got – glommed together like in the 50s and 60s and and is still surviving to this day in a lot of different forms but if you look at most of this stuff online um with these people that are that are screaming about these things that we're talking about the people that are still screaming about uh, the franklin cover-up and like all of these all of these crazy conspiracy theories um you boil it down and you just kind of keep doing a reduction on what it is they're saying what their attitudes are it's I call it crypto Christianity, but it is crypto Christianity. It's like a lot of these people wouldn't even tell you publicly that they are necessarily a devout Christian, but they sure talk like one. They they, they talk like fundamentalists. Definitely, definitely. And it's you know, it's just interesting seeing this like turn that I've seen so many people have taken over the past, you know, few years with with the rise of Trump and, and right wing populism and you know, Steve Bannon and Breitbart, you know, I've, I've known people that it, it, it's it's weird to me. I've known a lot of people who their right wing their right wing turn came like after reading Pat Buchanan. And I always tell people, I'm like, does Pat Buchanan have some like weird power where like when he writes a book, it's like it's like the Necronomicon. It causes people to lose their fucking minds. You know, I, <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've not met people that turn from left to right. 
reading Buchanan, but I did I did see a lot of people go from left to right reading Moldbug back just what ten years or five years ago or whatever it was six years. Um, yeah, around 2014, I started to see like the the murmur in my kind of circle of friends was like some people were starting to really sound like racist right wing assholes to put it in no other no other term that I can think of. Um, and and then I started like, well, what what caused you to think like, or what is it that you that you've come into contact with? What new information do you have? And they started sharing this neo reactionary uh mold bug mold buggy and type stuff that was just really baffling to me because I would you know like read it and I'd be like how do you get from there to there I, I just don't understand what happened I think a lot of it was fear um I think the I think the market crash of 2008 really um freaked a lot of people out and it caused them to show their true colors I'm not I'm not excusing them by any stretch of the imagination but I had people abandon me because I was a uh, a vocal and actually physical supporter of Occupy. Um, when when the market crashed, um, and then I saw the the guy that everybody was telling me was going to be the great hope, and I kept telling them, I grew up in Chicago, man, and if you're a politician in Chicago and you're still alive, you're on the take. Um, and and they they said I was being cynical, right? So. Then I saw this this guy get into office, and the, what is the first thing he did? He bailed out all the organizations and institutions that put us in this situation to begin with with our tax money, and that pissed me off. And it pissed off a lot of people in the early days of Occupy, and I know the very first uh, kind of the, the, the front lines of Occupy in the very beginning, um, there was actually uh, a reason we were all there, and, and I just stated that reason. And then as it progressed, it became more and more diffuse and more and more people came on board with their own agendas. And then it kind of became, you know, what it became, which was a great, a great scream at the system. I won't say that it wasn't because it was, um, but it wasn't a focus scream. So it, it, it wasn't, uh, it, it didn't stick around. It was, it was easily pushed aside because nobody could articulate what it, what it stood for towards the end. Because it stood for everything for everybody. In one way, that's very romantic and cool. Politically speaking, though, no, that's suicide. What was that last part? Politically speaking, that's suicide to not have an articulation of what your, what your position is. So, you know, I mean, that, that, I think that along with the fact that by the time they came and I was, I was at the, what they called the eviction. I was at the eviction of Los Angeles and I was at the eviction of San Francisco. I was, driving up and down the coast of California on my motorcycle, going to both San Francisco and, and Los Angeles Occupy. And by the time the evictions came, I think everybody was kind of over it as far as the, the media and the public's perception. Um, everybody was like, eh, you know, they, they don't stand for anything. So bulldoze them, let them go. So we didn't have any, we didn't have any support from the populace anymore. The early days, it was, it was, uh, inspiring there was a lot of people i mean there was housewives showing up and uh families with children and it was it was very cool uh, it, you know it was like i got i got my taste of the 60s with the early days of occupy it was very cool so so wh- where do you think the switch happens i i know you said that you had conversations with people uh where you were like what do they really think this was that even before 2014 were you starting to see that could you talk a little bit about that well, I was, I'd already, like I said, I already seen it like, like in the late nineties, early two thousands, I'd already like in the conspiracy culture, I'd already seen it. 
um, I'd, I'd already heard this creeping fascism, for lack of a better term, and creeping racism and creeping uh, um, misogyny started to, was like really um, being spoken and dog whistled and, and uh, openly spoken about in closed in closed door sessions. But um, and then I started to see that creep out into the public sector. The first time I noticed it, at least, was around 2014. Um, and, and that's when I, I started to see people, like, publicly declare, like, I'm, I'm neo-reactionary now. I'm, I'm alt, or later it became alt-right. I'm alt-right, you know, and I'm just like, what are they doing? Do they not, do they not see what's going on here? And, and then the alt-right thing became trendy. Um, I was probably the most baffled by people on 4chan picking it up because 4chan had been so left or at least, you know, progressive, uh, up until that point. And then, and then, and then I think, um, the, the Nazi trope ironically was being kicked around and then at some point it became non-ironic. And I, and I, I, I don't, I can't explain that, uh, JG. I, I don't know how to explain it. Um, I just watched it happen. I, I was like a fly on the wall kind of watching all this go down. And I'm like, I'm still puzzled by it. How did this happen? It's almost like somebody had some sort of mind control ray <laughs> that if you came into contact with this stuff, that there was a 99% chance that you were going to flip and, and become somebody who stood behind this kind of stuff. I, 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 I can't tell you how it happened. I don't know. I still don't know. Well, I think, I think it gets it like the, uh, the issue of, you know, that, that private versus public, uh, type of deal. You know, I think a lot of people, put on a different public image yeah. than they do in their private life. And I think we saw the uh, silent sympathizers sort of come out around 2014. Yep. Yeah. I mean that, that I, you could be right. And I, and I don't disagree that that's, that's a strong possibility. Um, I also think that maybe some people warp themselves into it, you know, like by doing it ironically day in, day out that, that uh, it became normalized for them. Um, I think that's part of it as well. I, I, I suspect that, that it's a psychological game that they played on themselves. And I also know that there was, um, there was a lot of stuff going down. Um, 2015, I got very interested in, in Russia um, only because I was on the dark web. I was, I was seeing a lot of Russian chatter about troll farms and um, there was even some people that approached me um, and asked me if I would want to work for this Russian ad agency. If you could see me, I'm making air quotes, um, designing campaigns. Uh, and I and I just kind of stopped them and said, no, I have no interest in it because I, you know, I knew for one thing I'd probably be working for Russian mobsters. Um, I knew for another thing that uh, I, I at least I thought that I would be. I, they were trying to recruit me to sell Cialis or whatever the hell they were doing. Um, but you know, now in retrospect, I look at it and wonder what it was. I'll probably always wonder about that. And I'm not saying that they were trying to recruit me to do any of the stuff that was going on, um, around the election, but could have been, but definitely there was, there was a weird, you know, to use Intel terminology, there was a weird chatter around 2014 that started to happen real hard, um, in the dark web. And it was a lot of Russians, um, talking a lot of, talking about a lot of things a lot of it was hard to decipher because putting russian into 
uh, Babblefish is not always 100% <laughs> efficient. <laughs> um, but there was just like this large Russian uh, presence that showed up on the dark web doing a lot of uh, weird things. And I, I, I'm assuming there was also this I, – I think you were aware pretty early on of this thing that people are now calling NRX yes. or, or Neo Reaction. Was that a dark yeah, yeah. web thing too? Um, no, that's the thing is it, it it never I mean it was but it didn't it didn't have to be. That was the the NRX came out pretty much on the public web from the beginning. Um and, How did you become aware of it? Um a friend of mine um went from being a socialist to to declaring themselves a, a neo reactionary. And uh this was like I want to say spring 2014. Um, around April or so, 2014, because I, I remember only reason I remember I'm not great with dates unless I can tie in a, a life event to it, and that life event happened to be that I was back in the San Francisco Bay Area working a contract, and and so I remember where I was when that happened. I was uh, um, working at an anarchist collective that I was helping put together, and um, and then this friend of mine started talking about this, and I was just kind of scratching my head going neo reactionary. What the hell is that? So I, so I researched it. Um, and that, and that led me down the path of like watching the alt right form and rise, uh, from 2014 through 2016. I still keep an eye on them to this day, actually. Well, well, the NRX types are a bit more, uh, it's, it's interesting. They try to be a bit more wily about stuff. You know, uh, these people like Moldbug who are like, well, I'm not racist, but, you know, blacks but. were sort of built for slavery, <laughs> like obviously. <Yeah>. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I think NRX is kind of the exclusive tries to be the exclusive intellectual side of the alt right. I mean, NRX showed up before before alt right was a term. NRX showed up first, um, and then you had uh, like the Hestia Society and uh, Moldbug, and then you had the uh, some of these people like kind of show up and neo the originally it was neo reactionary and then it, that got shorthanded to NRX and then NRX um, started to branch out and then that's when you started to get the alt right and I think wasn't Richard Spencer the first called it the alt right yeah he was, he started a website called alt right I think dot com yeah. you know that 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 was the first big one and he was trying to get the libertarians. Which yeah, I, I've always noticed that right wing libertarians always flip. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the people that that um, the right stuff. Do you remember that website? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that was most of those guys came out of the right wing libertarian uh, arena um, that that now just like uh, that Daily Showa the podcast. I mean, they don't even make any bones about it. They drop the N word like it's like it's a like it's a comma. You know, they they don't care at all anymore. Um, and so, yeah, I watched all this happen and, and you know, scratched my head. And then, like, with the rest of the world, I watched Trump get elected. You know, I, I really thought there was absolutely no way that man was going to get elected. And I'm not saying that I was a Hillary Clinton supporter because she has she has a lot of prob- problematic baggage as well. But, you know, I just like, no. It's not going to happen because this would be a chap. This would be a page out of *Idiocracy* the movie. That if we have a guy who's actually been part of WWE, who who is a uh, reality show TV host, uh, become the president, that would that would just be like too much like that movie. Well, 
look where we are. We're in that movie. Our the White House has become a reality show. Like I mean, I guess it always kind of was, but now it doesn't make any bones about what it is. And Trump's not the problem. That's that's what I keep telling people. Come to me all the time. And they're like blah 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 Trump. And I'm like Trump's not the problem. The problem he's is a symptom. He's a symptom. He's where did all these people that put him in office came from? That's the question you should be asking yourself. Mm-hmm. Because. Yeah, the argument that he didn't win the popular vote, blah, blah, blah. It's still a hell of a lot of people that voted for him. And it's still, unfortunately, I think a hell of a lot of people that are going to vote for him again in 2020. Yeah, and it's it's interesting, the narrative that arises out of that. Uh, you know, and I, I want to get your take on this because some people disagree with me. We always hear this this thing that uh, this is all the, the working class, uh, their fault. People use the term white working class a lot now. Um, I, and I, I think there were like elements of the working class that voted for Trump, but overall the working class don't vote. They don't have time for it. You know, I, I think a lot of people want to ignore that a lot of the alt-right and a lot of this neo-reaction stuff, it comes out of the suburbs. Yeah. It comes out of a lot of like, uh, very entitled middle-class young white mills. Yeah. Yeah, and people yeah, who I mean, are like, uh, after they start making money, you know, they'll shed their socialism and be like, "Well, fuck these poor people." <laughs> yeah, I've seen it. I've seen I've seen that very scenario play out in front of me. But um, here's the thing: the, the thing that I think people don't know, maybe, um, I came from a, a very blue working class family. Um, I grew up in Chicago. Uh, my dad used to be a precinct captain for mayor, the, the old man, Mayor Daley. Um, it, my family was about as Democrat as you can get. They were all union people, uh, auto workers, steel workers, bread truck drivers. I mean, you know, union people. And they all voted for Ronald Reagan to the man. So uh, the fact that a bunch of middle class union or formerly what would have been union workers back when the unions were still around, um, people would vote for Trump is not surprising to me. It's not. Um, it's that they got mobilized is what was surprising to me because, like you said, most of them don't vote, but maybe now that they're all unemployed, they can. Right, right. Yeah, it, it's it's a very uh, tangled web that has been you know weaved uh, by by all of this. Um, I I think though what's really interesting about the alt right is is what they've managed to. Uh, weaponize if you will and what they've weaponized is what you helped pioneer the the arg yeah they have and that 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 uh, distresses me but but you're right um a lot of what went on with uh with the, the trump election i mean it, just look at look at like the the the, the memetics that were used uh, was a big thing uh, chaos magic was something that was invoked um time and time again i mean i i was still scratching my head about all this when it was going down um, I mean, here's here's a perfect example of where we the the time we live in. Just the other day, uh, there was something that went down with Gavin McGinnis involved, and there was a picture somebody took of him uh, standing there staring at the camera. And in front, in the foreground of this picture, was a guy walking towards the camera that was part of the Proud Boys that were there with him. And the guy was wearing a MAGA hat and a sweatshirt that had an OTO insignia on it. Can you get your head around that? Wow. 
it's, it's like all these. I'll um, send you the picture. I was just like, I, in in my when somebody sent it to me, I just like I answered them back and I said, I am perplexed, <laughs> <laughs> which was supposedly Crowley's last words, and and I think maybe that, that Crowley was looking into the future and he saw that <laughs> when he said it. <laughs> It's, it's it's like when I see all these uh you know Robert Anton Wilson groups on Facebook and uh you know you always get these people that are like Robert Anton Wilson would have been a Trump supporter yeah what, what planet am I living on now I I knew Bob he was a personal friend he would not have been a Trump supporter um if if you read any of his le- the latter part of his life when he was re- reading writing things like um the thing that ate the constitution about George Bush, uh, GW Bush and Bob would not have been a Trump supporter. He did not support fascism in any way, shape or form. He was as anti-fascist as you could get. Um, and that's not to equate him with the anti-fa, but that is to say that he was an anti-fascist. Um, so yeah, that, and, and, and that's been thrown at me too. There's like, well, you know, like your friend Reverend Ted Wilson said, it's like, no, it's not like my friend Reverend Ted Wilson said. All right. And if you if you say that again, I'm going to show you how much of a uh, anyway. Well, well <laughs> it's about, like a pilot. <laughs> it, it's like, you know, Wilson wrote like a whole screed called uh, Natural Law. or yeah. Don't put a rubber on your willy, which yep. was basically a giant attack on Murray Rothbard, mm-hmm. who is mm-hmm. the crazy libertarian, although really his ideas end up being like this authoritarian monarchism that influences yeah. Moldbug. He wrote a whole like essay on why Rothbard is basically an idiot. Yeah. You know, I don't see how he could be an alt-right guy. Well, I mean, people uh, back in the, in the early nineties um, in the late eighties, when, when Bob moved to Santa Cruz after I moved there, um, he moved there because his kids lived there, which I didn't know when I first moved there, but he moved up and then we could hang out more often. Um, he didn't drive. And um, so I, oftentimes he would ask me to drive him um, to, uh, you know, like a speaking engagement if it was in the Bay Area at all. Um, so I, I got to rub elbows with a lot of his fans and people for some reason thought Bob was a libertarian. Um, and there was probably some of the ideas in libertarianism that he had agreed with, just like there are some that I agree with. Um, but you know, his, his takeaway or his response to that was always, um, yeah, people think I'm a libertarian, but I don't hate, I don't hate poor people that much. <laughs> Cause he did, he grew up very, very kind of lower middle class, uh, shanty Irish as he used to call it. Um, just, you know, he, he came from a similar background as me, uh, working class family in a big city. So, uh, I don't see Bob ever. And, and he, and, Contrary to popular belief, he didn't make a ginormous amount of money on his books. He did not. He made a modest income. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point because uh, I've seen left-wingers critique Robert Anton Wilson as not as being anti-working class and not you know liking the poor, but I never really saw that. No, he he had a tremendous amount of um, respect for for you know for working class people. Like I said, he came from a working class family. Um, I mean, he he definitely wanted us all to aspire to do more and be more um, and, and not be so uh, manipulated as we are. Um, but I but he, he didn't have um, he didn't despise poor people like a lot of libertarians do. He did not at all. 
I can tell you because he, like I said, he never actually became anything other than a middle class person, mm-hmm. income wise. I mean, that's all I'm going to say. But I, I know, I know a lot about how much money he made because we did projects together. Um, like if there's, uh, if anybody's interested, just go to archive.org and put in my name plus his name, and there's some video projects and some audio projects that I made uh, public domain that we did together, and there was. Some speaking engagements that we did together, and and uh, you know, we became friendly, and there was conversations in the car that we had that, you know, where he was talking about money, and so I, I know that he wasn't rich. He he never got extremely wealthy. Well, it's it's or, the same story even, or, with Timothy Leary. Even, yeah, Timothy Leary, same thing. Um, there's I don't want to I don't want to get into gossip here, but yeah, there's there's stories that I that I knew about Tim that was like, wow, really you you were that hard up? But yeah, there were times where he was hard up. And just just real quickly before we get back to the uh, the the topic of the right, what do you, what do you think it is about Robert Anton Wilson and, and Tim Leary that have uh, sort of touched so many people over the years? I mean, what was your personal experience with um, reading Robert Anton Wilson's work? Um, I came to Bob Wilson in a very interesting way. I I was a, a member of a industrial band in Chicago. And there was a guy who was a member of a kind of a kind of a synth rock band, I guess you would call it, um, who was a friend of mine. And we were doing some collaboration. He came in and did some guitar parts for this recording I was doing. And um, and he made a joke about uh, Illuminatus trilogy. This was like early 80s. And um, and I said, oh, yeah, I have that book, but I haven't read it yet. And he's like, you should read that book. And then. Um, I put it on on the top of my to read pile. This is like 82 or something like that. 83. Um, and then, uh, before I got to it, actually, uh, I ran across cosmic trigger and I'm like, Oh, it's the same guy. And, uh, I pulled it. I read that first and then that, that kind of blew my mind. And then I it definitely went to, uh, right to a luminous trilogy and I kind of tore through it in about a week. Uh, all three I, of that big red Dell edition that all three were in the same book um, kind of tore through that in a week. And uh, not too long after that, I went to see him at a lecture in Chicago at some yoga or yoga Zen Institute. I think it was a Zen Institute on, on the lake and uh, ended up striking up a conversation with him after the lecture because he was looking for a cigarette and I smoked. <laughs> And that's when he still smoked. And um, and we stood out on the on the balcony and smoked cigarettes and had this really nice long conversation and it struck up a uh, uh, a conversation that went on for years afterwards. It survived my moving to California and and him moving to San, Santa Cruz. So there you go. There's something deeply liberatory about Wilson and, and Leary's like sort of a you know approach to things. And in a way, it's like a it's it's I, I don't want to use the word postmodern because that's so overused now, but it's yeah. uh it's very liberatory. You know, I always liked uh, that that Wilson line. Reality is what you can get away with. <laughs> I think what what attracted me to Bob's stuff was the discordian aspect of it, for sure, um, because I've always been a bit of a prankster myself. Um, and. Uh, also, the the DIY aspect of it, it kind of had a punky feel to it. It was like 
you know, don't don't uh, don't go looking for gurus. Be your, learn to be your own guru. I really like that aspect to it, um, and the anti-authoritarian aspect of it was was uh, very appealing to me. Because, like I said, I you know I was I was a, a anti-authoritarian my whole life. I just kind of naturally never liked people telling me what to do. <laughs> well, speaking of the punk thing, he he did an album with a punk band, if I recall yep. correctly. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I think it was uh, something about the biscuits of the Illuminati, or I can't remember. I can't remember. I, I used to have that record. I can't remember. I probably still do somewhere, but um, yeah, it was. Uh, it was a punk album that he did kind of voiceover on. It was interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, you know, I, I like I said, I like that idea of reality is what you can get away with and sort of, you know, that DIY ethic. Um, but I, I think we see now, like, the ways in which narratives can really be used against us in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah. Yep. Especially with, you know, the, the topic I originally contacted you for was uh, – QAnon and and uh, Pizzagate. What were you thinking when you first saw? You know, I guess the first one was Pizzagate. What, what yep. were you thinking when that first arose? Um, I I pointed to that. I pointed. I, I grabbed a couple of people and said, "Remember what I was telling you back in the late '90s and early 2000s that this kind of shit was going to happen. There it is." And I think they started listening to me at that point. I think I told you before. Um, back in the early days when I would bring this up that these conversations were happening and I didn't like the subtext of what I was hearing, um, people would kind of roll their eyes and, and be like, yeah, Joe, whatever. Um, but here it was like, like in right in front of me, it was like coming to fruition and on a national stage helped along a large part by people like Alex Jones, for sure. Um, becoming more mainstream as well, but this all was happening at the same time. And, when I saw the Pizzagate stuff happening, um, I said this could get dangerous really fast, and it did. Um, if, if people recall, there was a guy who showed up armed at, at the comic ping pong um, and looking for the kids, you know. Um, and then there was uh, um, later when the QAnon thing came up, you know, again, I saw all the aspects of an ARG being played. Um, but, but not being played in an open sort of way, but, but more being played on somebody as a prank um, or not even a prank. But, you know, uh, I don't know. I wouldn't call it a prank. I would, I would say more it's propaganda. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think I already told you that when I saw Hollywood grab the ARG thing and just basically – you know, prostituted out to be a, a, a vehicle for marketing. Um, now I was seeing it being, you know, turned into a, a propaganda arm of, you know, this kind of alt-right, right-wing conspiracy nut thing that's been going on for a while, um, which all seems to, you know, be in opposition to anybody that opposes Trump. Um, I think in the last two years, especially, if if people have been paying attention at all, um, they see that these narratives are starting to become very dangerous. Um, okay, sure, the pipe bombs that were sent to all the opponents of Trump were not necessarily wired up correctly to go off. But some of the other things that have happened have been very deadly to a lot of people. Um, and I think will continue to be because this administration – continues to wink and nudge and nod 
and dog whistle that these things are okay. And unfortunately, I think the left has fallen into the trap of being baited to do stupid things. Um, and, and, and that gives them, um, that gives the right too many, uh, counterpoints to point to in, in critiquing what the left is doing. So for example, I'm, I'm probably going to make enemies now, but I don't care. Um, I think that the, that the Antifa showing up at, um, these protests or, or demonstrations or whatever you would call them where the alt-right was marching around with tiki torches and banging a drum probably would have gone largely unnoticed if, if the, if the Antifa left had not shown up and started provoking these people. Um, they should have just left it alone because nobody was paying attention to those idiots. Well, it's, it's like that. if Hillary Clinton wouldn't have said uh, the deplorables and, and pointing out Pepe, yeah. you know, uh, no, exactly. the right wouldn't be a thing. No one would give yeah. a fuck who Richard Spencer was. Exactly. I mean, they. The, the thing about the left is they have not learned rule number one: don't feed the trolls, right? And if you know anything about online culture, you know that you don't feed the trolls because the trolls are looking for attention. That's why they're trolling. They're trying to provoke. Um, confrontation is an invitation. I'm sorry. Uh, provocation is an invitation to confrontation, and that's what they're looking for. Is they're, they're provoking to create confrontation, and then through confrontation they get exposure, um, and that's the formula over and over and over again. And the left has not learned that lesson yet. Um, unfortunately, we don't have, um, I think, a strong coherent left in this country anymore. Um, we have a, a washed out neocon. Uh, and, and a washed out uh, uh, neo left, um, both of neo liberals, neo liberals, ne- yeah, I call them neo left. Ne- neither of which represent anything I care about, um, or any, or I think that represent anything anybody should care about. But you know, there we go. We 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 don't have the we don't have a strong legitimate left anymore. And um, I think we had one for a while, but it got it got stomped out pretty quickly in the sixties. Yeah, I mean. Just it, it's it, it's always bizarre to me how people react to certain things. Like I remember, right after the election, there was this whole thing about wearing safety pins to show your support for the LGBTQ, and uh, 4chan came out and was like, "Well, we're gonna wear the safety pins, and then we're gonna beat up, you know, these like kids that think that we're allies." And people were <laughs> flipping out about it, and they're like, "Now we can't use the safety pins." Like, what are you guys worried about? I mean, they're 4chan trolls. They don't go outside. I mean, they're shut-ins. They're Ricky yeah, Morris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they are. That's the thing. But see, that that's that's one thing I learned with the with the uh, Ong's Hat experiment is is and and people really should pay attention to this is that um, people can get in, especially online. The way the the way the online world is constructed and the way that we access the information through the online world can lead to the building of very strong reality tunnels very quickly. Um, and so the fact that people are despairing over something that a bunch of shut-ins are saying online, um, you know, is interesting. Um, it, you should be able to discern that this is not something that's going to touch you in real life ever. On the other hand. Um, what I'm starting to see is now that there are there are some people that are so entrenched in these reality tunnels that they will go outside with a gun and do something. So it's a weird time that we live in. It really is. What 
It's even with the Pizzagate stuff. I mean, my first reaction to Pizzagate was this is coming from 4chan. This is the place that talks about lolly porn, mm-hmm. which is like the uh, the anime porn, I guess. I don't know. I don't know yeah, enough yeah. about it. Uh, and I'm like, these people are, you know, kind of geared towards perversion. Like they're they're. It's almost like it, it, it was like a a perverted role play that they were doing, and then some people took it seriously. Yeah, that's why I said people people warp themselves into these things. Sometimes I think um, the uh, well, here's the thing, and you've you've been we've had offline conversations, so I know that you know where what, of which I speak. Um, the 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 uh, the Pizzagate thing, though, really where it got most of its ammunition from was from some of the conspiracy counterculture uh, SRA type stuff, right? Right. Um, this, I mean, this is really where it kind of, it got its constructs from, and uh, I think that the 4chan people, um, really, the people that, that built it, that built this this ARG, for lack of a better terminology, called Pizzagate, um, were drawing on that very heavily. I mean, it, it's really easy to find this stuff. There's hundreds of bloggers out there that are maybe thousands of bloggers out there that are talking about this stuff on a daily basis. There's a whole kind of culture around it. Which, like I said, was saying earlier, everybody think it, thinks that it went away in the '80s after Satanic Panic, but it didn't. It's 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 gotten bigger in a lot of ways because now it has the internet. It doesn't need the mainstream media to uh, propagate itself anymore. It, it has the internet, and the internet um, is a better channel for it in a lot of ways because there's there's no uh, no restrictions on what they can say and what they can do. Yeah, it's it's all like just you know it's uh, you know I have a friend Jamie Kershio who we've both worked with yeah uh, who has said he's like I feel like I'm living in a dark mirror world of the '90s counterculture now it's all like fucked up you have like QAnon type stuff coming out there and it's you know I I have to tell you the reason I contacted you originally was uh like I said because of QAnon but it was one thing mm-hmm. in particular there was this point where I guess the QAnon profile on Twitter. Uh, said, look out for the red shoes. That's how you'll know who's on our side or who's against us or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I just said to myself, he's leaving clues. Yeah. This is an ARG and people don't realize it. Well, but it's a dark ARG. Um, I don't I don't think that somebody is doing this as an ARG and that somewhere down the line they're going to they're going to unveil themselves and say, was it that fun? I was having you guys on. You see how stupid you Trump supporters are? I don't think that's going to happen. I think I think this is a legitimate propaganda um, uh, project. Um, and I I don't I'm not being conspiratorial when I say this. This could be literally some redneck in a basement in Iowa doing this, and it probably is. Um, but it's you don't think you know, it's coordinated. I don't think it's that coordinated. No, I think there's I think there might be several people working on it, um, but I don't think it's more coordinated than that. Um, because there's a lot of people in the, in the alt-right, like I said, that, that came up in, in the Chan um, uh, culture um, that know things like alternate reality. They know that I've heard, them, I've heard them use the terminology alternate reality game. I've heard them use that term on some of their podcasts. Um, a lot of these people are hardcore gamers. I mean, look at, look at uh, Gamergate. There's, there's one we forgot about. Um, that, was, that was huge. I mean, who knew 
that that uh, so many people in gamer culture were so hard right, right? But then we found out, didn't we? Um, yeah. So there's there's like there's there's a lot of crossover where uh, if you said if you said in the in the 90s if you said 4chan, you wouldn't think right. You wouldn't think right wing conservative at all, would you? Right, right, yeah. And if you said gamer in the late nineties, would you think right wing conservative? No, I, I would think I would think of uh, people that would hate the right wing conservatives, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, it was it was the people protesting Mortal Kombat that were pissing off the gamers. It was the moral majority, the Jerry Falwells. Yep, 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 exactly. So somewhere. Maybe it was a generational turn. Again, I'm I'm befuddled. I I do I cannot point to any one thing. I can point to a lot of possibilities and some probabilities, but I can't point to any one thing and say with any certainty this was this was the pivot point for when this happened. But it happened, and it happened in more than one milieu. It happened online. It happened in gamer culture. It happened, happened with the new atheists. It happened with the new atheists. Exactly. I mean, I, we could go on, but there was something. Uh, that that caused the pivot point. Maybe it was a generational wave. New blood came in, and they had uh, conservative uh, leanings. I mean, I, I, I can say that I, in talking to some of the twenty-somethings that I work with on a daily basis, I, I get the feeling that they are nowhere near uh, as uh, crazy progressive decadent as we were in the eighties. <laughs> well, you know, the the thing I think is is sort of a uh key factor in all of this is uh like with gamers i mean video gaming reduces things to a zero-sum game winners and losers you know the winner takes the spoils the loser gets destroyed new atheist culture i mean you see all these videos uh christopher hitchens destroys feminist or christopher hitchens destroys you know uh uh, Muslim or whatever. Yeah. It's and, and it's always in all caps. Destroys. You know. Uh-huh. All or of these owns. cultures seem right. <laughs> owns or pones, right? Uh huh. Uh-huh. And it's like all of it seems to come back to this inability to see anything other than a zero sum game in everything we do in daily life. Yeah, I mean th- that was the hard lesson I learned with with the Young's Hat Project was I was trying to run an infinite game uh, that was publicly accessible to anybody, and uh, unfortunately, you can't do that. You cannot do that. That was the hard, the hard lesson I learned because people, most people in this world do not even understand what it means to be, to play for the sake of playing. They don't get it. Play to them means zero sum automatically. They're, they're the same thing. Well, not, not only that, but we have years of Cold War propaganda. Yeah. You know, telling us like, oh, community, that's all like, you know, all of this is code word for communism. Mm-hmm. Welfare is bad. Working mm-hmm. together, bad. Everyone's an individual. You know, it's a dog-eat-dog world. And it's all coming back to haunt us now because uh, we can't think outside of those terms, you know. And it, it's it's sad in a way because I, I've never understood why people think everything's a zero-sum game. I think most of us, you know, can work together and lead a pretty cooperatively happy life. I don't think everything has to be, like, equal in the sense that, that you know, a crazy right winger would say. I don't. I don't think we're all equal in you know whatever talents we may have, whatever innate talents or skills we develop. But I mean, we can all basically get out of here alive if we you know want it to as a culture. And yet, for some reason, we don't. And I, I think it's 
it's you know the culture is rammed into us this sort of uh you know it's a dog eat dog world you know eat shit and die mentality yeah, and I don't think it, I don't think there's a like any kind of unified conspiracy at the top pulling the strings on this, but no, I do I think, think it's structural. It's structural, absolutely. I think that um, because we do live, and we have to get real about this. I don't hear people say this enough. Let's all get real. We live in a corporatocracy. Not we're becoming one. We live in a corporatocracy. That's what we live in. This world is run by corporations. End of story. Um, that doesn't mean that that it has to be that way, but it is that way. Don't don't fool yourself and think that we're sliding down that slippery slope. We've slid down that slippery slope. We're in it, and because of that, um, everything is just like when the church was running the world. Um, everything was was structured around the, you know the structure of a church, and the church of course took its model from you know uh, uh, monarchies, um, so that. Uh, you know, even even the way a church is is uh, constructed architecturally has to do with uh, mar- monarchist thinking. Um, we are, we live in in the midst of corporatocracy, so we we have corporatist thinking. And day in day out, um, if you're working as most people are for some sort of large corporation in one way or another, um, you are basically immersing yourself on a daily basis and 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 you know most people will take their work home these days so on a continual basis you are immersing yourself in a game of psychopath psycho, psychopathy if i can speak english um that was designed by the winners of that the previous winners of that game which are by nature psychopaths and that is what you live in so yeah like we were talking about larping yourself into electing uh Donald Trump is president. If you're around that 24/7, it's real hard to shake it off. Um, well, what I mean, starts I, out as acting becomes, you know, yeah. the reality for the person. Yeah, exactly. I think that's. I mean, you and I both have experienced this, where um, we've seen people that that have leveled up their uh, their income, and then you just mentioned it, and then all of a sudden they're like, "Fuck those poor people." Um, you've seen it. I've seen it. Um, that's an, that's another version of it right there. It's like now you're immersed in a higher income, a higher tax bracket, and your reality becomes something else. Yeah, yeah, and I but you know, getting getting to the wrap up here, I think mm-hmm. I always like to end on a more positive note. As I tell people, uh, <laughs> it's it's interesting with ARGs. I still think there's a lot of great potential in them. You know, I see th- I see things like um, the there, there's this musician Poppy who uh, sort of does interesting things on YouTube where it it sort of has an ARG aspect to it, and right. it's also a social commentary on the music industry. Right. Uh, but the big one for me with ARGs is, like I said, the Slenderman stuff. Mm-hmm. The Slenderman is basically a, a horizontal storytelling. You yeah. Creepy pastas. These people share a story, and then people can add on to it. Yeah, so it becomes a very communal thing. Uh, so, if you could comment on the sort of positive side of ARGs and how that may still exist today. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm designing some games that I'll probably one of them I'm going to release into the uh, open source community next year, hopefully. <clears throat> that is um, that allows you to mount your own ARG in your own region, and it will be. Uh, configurable to the point that it that will play off the whatever city you live in or whatever region you live in. Um, and one of the things that, that annoyed me was when um, uh, 
Google or Niantic, which is owned by Google now, um, started calling things like Ingress and uh, Pokemon Go alternate reality gaming. Well, it's not. Um, it's there's one of the one of the aspects of alternate reality gaming that got lost along the way when it got co-opted was that it was based on uh, community thinking, wisdom of the crowds, collective detective, you know, kind of thing where you and a group of people would work together to solve something and you would play in groups. Um, that's become kind of like backgrounded now. And uh, you got people walking around playing alone with their phone and these kind of things. And that's not ever what alternate reality gaming was about. Alternate reality gaming was about bringing people together in groups in, in my mind, in hopes that they would learn or relearn the ability to work together in small groups. Um, and so the games that I'll be releasing going forward will first of all be heavily, uh, preempted by you do know that this is a game <laughs> so that there will be an electronic end user license agreement that will highly stipulate that you're what you're entering into is an immersive game environment and we don't have to talk about this anymore but we want to make sure that you absolutely positively know that you're playing a game um, and then once you once the game is being played um, I, I want to encourage people working together because I think if I'm a reductionist and I like to always kind of, you know, uh, look at uh, the base of, of what is the cause of something. And to me, one of the things that's been taken away from us and, and we've, we've done it to ourselves, of course, but one of the things that we need to relearn is how to work together as groups because divide and conquer is an old and stupid strategy, but apparently it still works. And we have fallen victim to it, and we need to learn to walk, walk and talk and breathe together, the root of the word conspire, um, and, and do things together so that we don't have to be dependent and we're not so manipulative, uh, manipulative bull. I'm having problems speaking English language today. Um, in, when you stand alone, you're more easily manipulated. When you, when you stand alone and you're panicked, you're definitely more easily manipulated. There's strength in numbers, there's wisdom in crowds, and I want to put together games that reteach um, and, and allow people to relearn those abilities. Because, I mean, this is how we flourished as a species in the early days against the megafauna, was we worked together, right? Yeah, yeah, and I, I think we're seeing a return to a lot of that stuff. I mean, um, I hope New York so. City now, there's uh, a huge proliferation of... Uh, cooperative living spaces that's a big thing now and i also think you know what, what you were saying about uh you know when we're divided you know that's that's when we get you know screwed i always i always like that quote from dune fear is the mind killer man <laughs> no absolutely i mean that that is what's going on and we need to like we need to lose the fear we need to lose the fear of each other and we need to find a common space where i'm not saying you have to get along with everybody because it's not going to happen um, but find people you can get along with so that you can have a community of people. I mean, it, it shocks me to this day that uh, people living on the same street for 20 years don't know each other. It's like, how does that happen? But it happens. It's an ingrained cultural aspect that we live this monastic lifestyle and everything is, we are atomized and everything is being sold to us. And every value that's being handed to us is enforcing that. And we need to break out of that mold and we need to re start reaching across to other people 
and figuring out and relearning how to work with other people because it, it's it's something that, that I've noticed in working with 20-somethings that um, putting groups together to do technical projects, the first thing I have to do is teach them how to work together because they don't know. They really don't know. Well, that, that may not be the most positive note, but I, I think I think we'll get it together. Uh, humanity has a weird way of, like, you know, turning things around when I least expect it. Uh, yeah. You know, there was, there was one last thing I wanted to ask you about, if you have a second. Um, yeah. I, I know the uh, IPCC report just came out uh, on global warming, and I know you said you have some views on global warming based on uh, personal experiences you've had in the last few years. Could you tell my listeners – just a little bit about that or if, yeah, I if, mean basically that, that it's real, that I've seen it firsthand, that, that, that I've, I've been to the North pole last year. Um, and I've seen firsthand that there are huge swaths of land that used to be permanently covered in permafrost, not to be redundant, um, that are now melted and have trees growing in it. Um, there's, uh, places where you, you didn't used to be able to pass with a ship that you can, now pass with the ship up north because the ice has melted and stayed melted. Um, it, it really comes down to this. I don't want to get too preachy and I don't want to be long-winded. Um, but basically, we need to stop arguing about what the cause of global warming is. And we need to start thinking about and talking about and reacting to the fact that it is happening. That's what we need. That's where we need to get to. If we want to, if, if somebody wants to get in a side room and argue about is it man-made or not man-made, that's a different conversation. What we need to look at is that it's happening. It's having real effects. It will continue to have real effects, some of them devastating, and we need to plan for it. That's what we need to do, and, and that's where I'm at. I mean, I'm tired of arguing about what the cause of global warming is and whether or not it's real. It's real. It's that simple. Let's start planning. Let's start reacting and responding to it. I think we're beyond responding at this point. We need to start reacting because we've gone on too long with this stupid conversation of, you know, oh, I think it's just fake news. And it's like, it's not. It's not. And if you don't believe me, um, there's ships that go north of Alaska all the time. You can get on one and you can go up just like I did. And you can see for yourself and then come back and have this conversation with me again. And just just for clarification, this trip to the North Pole, I, I'm assuming it was for it was part of a research uh, project, and it was not. It is not an ARG. Just it so is, no one accuses it, you. Of it that. is not, and never was an ARG. It was it was a research project that went to the North Pole to uh, measure methane release and the effect of methane release. And I was on board the ship because I know IT and I know shortwave radio, which is something uh, I guess that's been lost over the years in comms people, but I was a shortwave radio enthusiast when I was a kid. So I know radio and I know IT comms. And so they were looking for somebody that could do both. Um, and uh, I fit the bill and I wanted to go. And so I went. Well, Joseph, it's been a really great two hours. Uh, you know, I know you've said that this is probably going to be your last uh, media interview what? Is there anything you would like to uh, impart to the listeners uh, since this may be the last time they hear from you? Um, no, I don't have any words of wisdom. Uh, just, you know, uh, reality is what you can get away with and don't buy the hype. How about that? <laughs> what, 
what is it that like i, I think the uh ufologist john kill used to say i am an expert in nothing <laughs> yeah exactly or as my uh, late friend robert anton wilson used to say keep the lasagna flying <laughs> <laughs> well i think that's a wrap folks uh thank you again joseph matheny for coming on parallax views thank you well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed this very special, previously unpublished conversation with Joseph Matheny. Hopefully, it provided you with some food for thought. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit it. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.